Hi there. This is Robin Norgren, and I'm your host for Montessori Creativity and the Meaning of Life. You can find me over on Instagram at, at Robin underscore Norgren or at UBU for Life. I want to start with an inspirational message from Eugene Patterson in his book called Solo. Jesus is not in the business of overworking you. Sure, he has not called you to a life of leisure, but God is also aware of your humanity. He wants you to let go when he sends you, to rest when he commands, and most importantly, to seek balance because of your trust in him, rather than your own frantic efforts. Participating in the work of the kingdom is an invitation to be present with Jesus not an excuse to abuse your body and spirit with constant rush. Stop, listen, think. Would you be willing to rest and break away from your important work if Jesus asked you to? Lay out all your to-do lists before God today. Take a moment and rest in his presence. Remember that he is looking out for your needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, even when you forget about them. Praise him for his care and ask for wisdom to discern between hard work and needless hustle and stress. You've been reminded that God cares for you about your health, about your needs, about the whole of you. That you are supposed to find a balance between work and rest, draining and recharging, You are not the only one struggling, forgetting to eat and take time alone. Encourage someone in your path who seems overworked that rest matters and offer a space for them to receive that stillness. This is an excerpt from a book, Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. Step away from the screen. My favorite cartoonist, Linda Berry, has this saying. In the digital age, don't forget to use your digits. Your hands are the original digital devices. Use them. While I love my computer, I think computers have robbed us of the feeling that we're actually making things. Instead, we're just typing keys and clicking mouse buttons. This is why so-called knowledge work seems so abstract. The artist Stanley Donwood, who's made all the album work of the band or for the band Radiohead, says computers are alienating because they put a sheet of glass between you and whatever is happening. You never really get to touch anything that you're doing unless you print it out, Donwood says. Just watch someone at their computer. They are so still, so immobile. You don't need a scientific study, of which there are quite a few, to tell you that sitting in front of a computer all day is killing you and killing your work. We need to move and to feel like we're making something with our bodies, not just our heads. Work that only comes from the head isn't any good. Watch a great musician play a show. Watch a great leader give a speech. You'll see what I mean. You need to find a way to bring your body into your work. 
Our nerves aren't a one-way street. Our bodies can tell our brains as much as our brains tell our bodies. You know that phrase, going through the motions? That's what's so great about creative work. If we just start going through the motions, if we strum a guitar or shuffle sticky notes around the conference table or start kneading clay, the motion kickstarts our brain into being and into thinking. Here's a quote from Edward Tooft. I have stared long enough at the glowing flat rectangles of computer strings, uh, computer screens. Let us give more time for doing things in the real world. Plant a plant, walk the dogs, read a real book, go to the opera. When I was in creative work, writing workshops in college, everything we did had to be double-spaced and in Times New Roman font. And my stuff was quite terrible. Writing ceased to be any fun for me. The poet Kay Ryan says, In the old days before creative writing programs, a workshop was a place, often a basement, where you sawed, hammered, drilled, or planed something. The writer, Brian Kittley, says he tries to make his workshops true to the original sense of the word, a light, airy room full of tools and raw materials where most of the work is hands-on. It wasn't until I started bringing analog tools back into my process that making things became fun again, and my work started to improve. For my first book, Newspaper Blackout, I tried to make the process as hands-on as possible. Every poem in that book was made with a newspaper article and a permanent marker. The process engaged most of my senses. The feel of newsprint in my hands. The sight of words disappearing under my lines. The faint squeak of the marker. The smell of marker fumes. There was a kind of magic happening. When I was making the poems, it didn't feel like work. It felt like play. The computer is really good for editing your ideas, and it's really good for getting your ideas ready for publishing out into the world, but it's not really good for generating ideas. There are too many opportunities to delete, to hit the delete key. The computer brings out the uptight perfectionist in us. We start editing ideas before we have them. The cartoonist Tom God says he stays away from the computer until he's done most of the thinking for his strips. Because once the computer is involved, quote, things are on an inevitable path to being finished, whereas in my sketchbook, the possibilities are endless, unquote. When it came time to sequence newspaper blackout, I scanned all the pieces into a computer and printed them out on little quarter sheets of paper. Then I pushed the sheets of paper all over my office, rearranging them into piles, and then a stack, the order of which I copied back onto the computer. That's how the book was made. Hands first, then computer, then hands, then computer. A kind of analog to digital loop. That's how I try to do all my work now. I have two desks in my office. One is, quote, analog, unquote, and one is, quote, digital, unquote. 
The analog desk has nothing but markers, pens, pencils, paper, index cards, and newspapers. Nothing electronic is allowed on that desk. That is where most of my work is born, and all over the desk are physical traces, scraps, residue from my process. Unlike a hard drive, paper doesn't crash. The digital desk has my laptop, my monitor, my scanner, and my drawing tablet. This is where I edit and publish my work. Why don't you try it? If you have the space, set up two workstations, one analog and one digital. For your analog station, keep out anything electronic. Take $10, go to the school supply aisle at your local store, pick up some pens, papers, and sticky notes. When you get back to your analog station, pretend it's craft time. Scribble on paper, cut it up, tape pieces back together, stand up while you're working, pin things on the walls, look for patterns, spread things around your space, and sort through them. Once you start getting your ideas, then you can move over to your digital station and use your computer to help you execute and publish them. And when you start to lose steam, head back to the analog station and play. This is an excerpt from a book called Montessori Learning in the 21st Century, A Guide for Parents and Teachers by M. Shannon Helfrich. Hands are for learning. As children master modes of locomotion, their hands gradually become the instruments of the mind. A child's ability to grasp objects develops parallel to the development of locomotion as the child becomes an active explorer of the environment. In his book, The Hand, How Its Use Shapes the Brain, Language, and Human Culture, Neuroscientist Frank R. Wilson, Ph.D., writes, There is no point lifting the baby's little bottom off the ground until the brain is prepared to confront the explosion of visual spatial information that it will result, that will result. Dr. Wilson describes this as the brain teaching itself to synthesize visual and tactile perceptions by making the hand and the eye learn to work together. Before the body is ready to move, the eye needs to learn to fixate on an object. It is only then, notes Dr. Wilson, that the angles and the reaching arm has wide latitude in the combination of joint angles and contraction relaxation patterns. Let me start over. It is only then, notes Dr. Wilson, that the reaching arm has wide latitude in the combinations of joint angles and contraction relaxation patterns of trunk and upper extremity muscles that can be assumed in order to bring the hand in contact with the physical target. Parents might witness this in their baby's development when they hang a mobile above their infant's crib. At first, it seems that the infant doesn't even see the mobile because there is no attempt to reach out toward it. Within a short period of time, the infant does reach out, almost by accident, reaching toward this new object. 
the first attempts to make the mobile move are random thrusts of the arm. But as the parents watch, they see that the thrusts of the arm become more directed. It is almost as if the baby's eyes see, and the brain analyzes the angle between the body and the mobile, the angle between the arm and the mobile, and the amount of force needed to hit the mobile. Very quickly, the infant becomes successful in hitting the mobile time after time. When we add in the factor of the eyes spotting just when the mobile has quit swinging from the baby's last hit, making the mobile available to be hit again, we begin to see the complexity of the task. Another experience along these lines relates to a baby's use of his legs and how his eyes sense where his legs are in space. Often, a parent will hold her baby and attempt to stand the baby on the parent's thighs, only to have the baby totally collapse his legs. It is as if the baby doesn't yet know that there is a stable surface before his legs. Again, it doesn't take long for the infant to feel secure, stiffening the legs and standing royally on dad or mom's lap. We often don't stop to think of the simple movements of the legs and hands in such a complex way. A child must learn to reach out and to grasp an object with the whole hand first, then later with just the fingers. A child must learn not only which fingers to use, but also how tightly to hold them and how to release the grip. Any mother who has experienced the depth grip her baby has on her glasses or her earring knows what I am saying. A small child grips with a tightness that is the full extent of his power. Letting go seems to be a later development.